0: I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in
1: Danger. As our listeners know, this season we've been obsessed with democracy and the law. Democracy of course requires the rule of law. That's basic civics, but American history is peppered with examples of how powerful figures try to circumvent the law, and often they get away with it.
0: They sure do, Siva. So running with that theme, speaking of getting away with it, Mm -hmm. I want to conjure up a scene, Siva, that will nauseate you but I <laughs> but it's it's important that I bring it back to life so it's yeah, sure it's January 2017 and Donald Trump is newly sworn in as president oh boy he shakes hands at a white house reception with James Comey then the FBI director and Trump as he grasps Comey's hand demands his personal loyalty mm. now later Americans got wind of this they were rightly astonished appalled even but Here's a subversive thought. Mm -hmm. In some ways, Trump's idea of Comey, the FBI director, as his guard dog kind of aligns with the way a lot of presidents have thought about the FBI, an Mm. institution that was supposed to serve them. Well, the guy who was the architect of that model, of course, was none other than the notorious J. Edgar Hoover, who led the Bureau for 37 years from
1: its founding
0: until his death in 1972.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not hard to see parallels between Trump's style of leadership and Hoover's. After all, both were obsessed with loyalty. Both were driven by conspiracy theories. And it's all very ironic now, of course, because FBI agents back in August raided Trump's Florida estate. And they are helping to investigate his handling of federal documents that he wasn't supposed to have. And so far, they're turning up a pretty damning case against him.
0: That's for sure. And it's a great moment now to turn to an expert who knows as much about the Federal Bureau of Investigation's history and Hoover's role in molding it as anyone. Beverly Gage is with us from Yale University. Her latest book is hot off the press. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Bev, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
2: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Well, in your new book, uh, your new biography of J. Edgar Hoover, you make a very strong case about, of course, the influence that Hoover had not just on the FBI, but in many ways on American political culture. And you also say that he helped, in a sense, to lay the foundations for modern conservatism. Mm. So paint a portrait of his ideology for a moment. You say it rested on three R's, race, religion, and reds. How did that ideology shape the institution that he led?
2: Well, I think we have a popular image of Hoover as a kind of rogue figure, right? Someone sitting in a back room wiretapping everyone, intimidating people, um, and gaining his power that way. But one of the points of the biography is to really situate him in much broader political trends and in a much bigger political story to remind everyone that actually for most of his career, he was one of the most popular figures in all of American politics. Um, And one element of that was his conservatism. from a very early age. Uh, Hoover went right into the Justice Department out of law school. He became director of the Bureau of Investigation in 1924, 1935. That becomes the FBI. And he stays there till 1972 when he dies, uh, still in that job. Um, And throughout that period, he was one of the nation's foremost articulators of a really kind of conservative moral vision of what the United States was supposed to do and what the United States stood for, his three biggest issues were religion. He was a great champion of the idea that the United States was a Christian or a Judeo-Christian nation. He was constantly urging people to go to Sunday school. Um, Race, though he talked about it a little bit less publicly, uh, he conducted campaigns uh, that really were meant to preserve the racial order targeting civil rights leaders, the civil rights movement more broadly, and other left movements. And then really the central cause of his life was anti-communism. And anti-communism not just I'm going after some communist spies or the Communist Party, but anti-communism as this kind of operatic existential struggle uh, between good and evil, religion and atheism, the American way of life, Western civilization, and the abyss. Um, mm. And he really stood for those things and in many ways popularized them.
0: Bev Hoover is a, is a Washington, D.C. boy, uh, born and bred. So he's, he's not just a bureaucrat who moves to Washington to work in the government. He's raised there. What's the city like? What's the world like that he comes from? And what are the assumptions about race and class and hierarchy that he is... Um, sort of bred into.
2: Yeah, this really is a book about Washington. Hoover is a pretty rare creature in the late 19th century when he's born, which is to say he was born in Washington to a family that had worked in the federal government for a long time. And uh, that was pretty unusual um, when the federal government wasn't so big. And I think Hoover really gets from Washington both aspects of his political legacy. He is taught very early on these traditions of government service, um, but Washington is also also a deeply conservative and southern town during the time that he's growing up. So segregation is being formalized during his childhood and early years of the government service. Uh, This institution that really came to fascinate me was his fraternity at George Washington University, which was called Kappa Alpha. Um, And Kappa Alpha was kind of a lost cause southern fraternity. It had been created in 1865 uh, to honor the legacy of Robert E. Lee and— uh, was just you know, deeply embedded in all of that kind of segregationist lost cause culture. And of course, this continues for most of his life. I mean, desegregation doesn't even begin in Washington until the 1950s. And then, of course, uh, it's quite incomplete. So he grows up in segregated institutions, in segregated federal employment, um, and that really shapes who he is and how he thinks about the world.
1: So the 20th century must have terrified him, basically, right?
2: Right. Things often did not seem to be going his way, though. In retrospect, they they kind of did go his way.
1: <laughs> well, that and that's really where we where we want to go with this conversation, because like we are fascinated by the parallels and comparisons uh, between Trump's attitude toward federal power and Hoover's attitude toward federal power. Now, of course, Trump wanted the FBI to be his guys, right his his instrument, and you know the FBI is not the only part of the federal government he wished worked for him personally. Uh, what do you make of that, uh, of Trump's style and Hoover style? Uh, are, we, are we right to see some sort of echo or parallel there?
2: So I think there are a lot of parallels, some of which you've already mentioned, um, a kind of conspiratorial thinking, a kind of overt and racialized law and order language. Right? So in a set of kind of ideological precepts and principles, they look really similar, On the other hand, Hoover really was a champion of and respecter of professional government service. I mean, that is kind of how he made his name. Uh, He believed in government expertise, he believed in government professionalism, he certainly believed in career government service. Um, And Trump, on the other hand, has done nothing but kind of exude contempt, not just for the intelligence community, but for almost anyone uh, who works in the career government service the State Department, the National Archives, the Library (laughs) of Congress, right? You name it. And Trump has uh, kind of heaped scorn on them. And the interesting thing to me about Hoover is that this is a combination we don't see very often anymore. Uh, This kind of deep ideological conservatism and this kind of good government, what was once a set of uh, really progressive ideas about uh, building the state and about how bureaucracy ought to work and about anti-corruption, et cetera. Hoover violated those principles at many points in his life, but he did believe in them, uh, and it was a lot of what made his popular image.
1: And yet the legacy, right, the legacy of life in America in the late 20th century and early 21st century is the national security state, which has had such a profound effect on daily life from surveillance to, uh, you know, filling our prisons uh, with people who've committed minor crimes, right, which is a hallmark of the late 20th, early
2: 21st century, seems to be a legacy of Hoover's too, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, the institutions he built, uh, particularly the FBI, Mm -hmm. but also certain ways of thinking about national security. Uh, You know, so much of our national security state was really built around the question of communism, the threat of communism abroad and at home. And so that burst of energy in the the 40s around that question, Hoover was really central to it. And those are all the same institutions and laws, um, not all of them, but many of them that we're dealing with today.
0: Okay, there's certainly continuity, but there's also some discontinuity, surely. After Hoover leaves and dies in 1972, Richard Nixon famously says, darn it, you know, I w- wish I had Hoover in the FBI. He could protect me from all of the Watergate hearings and the investigations and so forth. Clearly, today, with the FBI searching Mar-a-Lago and Trump's personal property, it has taken a step to demonstrate its political impartiality. Something has changed. So. After Hoover, what kind of transformation does the FBI go through? How much of today's FBI is Hoover's FBI?
2: Right. Well, in the 1970s, after Hoover died, Hoover died in 1972. And by the mid-1970s, you're having massive investigations into the intelligence establishment, most Famously, the Church Committee uh, and the revelations of the Church Committee, not only about the FBI, but about the CIA um, and about the intelligence establishment more broadly, really do change uh, the structures of the intelligence establishment as well as the way that Americans relate to the intelligence agencies. Um, So something really big changes uh, in the aftermath of Hoover's death. Uh, But I also think that, you know, the FBI remains in the same kind of awkward position that Hoover was in. So he and Nixon happened to be incredibly good friends. They kind of got together around the Alger Hiss case in the Mm -hmm. 40s. And then they were just pals uh, during Nixon's time as vice president. During the 1960s, I have all these nice little scenes of them kind of hanging out together, having cocktails, sort of double dating, you know, Hoover and Clyde Tolson and Dick and Pat, and they're all just together. So uh, they had this deep relationship. But interestingly, uh, once Nixon becomes president— that fractures a little bit because while Hoover does understand himself to be a servant of the president and he does have this close relationship with Nixon, uh, he also draws some lines about, you know, even you, Richard Nixon, <laughs> cannot make me do certain things. Mm. Um, and in weird ways, he kind of ends up as as one of the civil libertarians <laughs> of the Nixon administration wow. because he does not want Nixon to politicize the FBI uh, to the extreme that Nixon wants to. But the FBI has just in this really tough spot where they're constantly asked throughout their history to do highly politicized investigations. They are basically part of the executive branch. You know, they're in the Justice Department and so, uh, in some sense, are direct servants of the president, of the attorney general, and yet are supposed to be outside of politics, independent, impartial. Uh, government experts and investigators. And it's a really hard thing to balance. Uh, Hoover found it hard. James Comey certainly found it hard. And I think the FBI today is finding it difficult as well.
1: I mean, what if Hoover had lived two more years and led the FBI through the Watergate investigation? How would that have been different?
2: I actually believe, uh, you know, Nixon's little fantasy there that Hoover uh, might have just kept the whole thing shut down and kept Ah. it much tighter. Um, You know, one of the people who, of course, blows uh, Watergate open during the early years is Mark Felt, who uh, was the number three in Hoover's FBI, becomes the number two in the uh, aftermath of Hoover's death, is, of course, very mad that he's not the number one. And that's a lot of the reason (laughs) that he becomes Deep Throat. Um, and that's really critical in those early years uh, and months of the, of the Watergate investigation. So I think uh, Hoover might have stopped those leaks. You know, He would leak stuff when he wanted to. Uh, he got really mad at his uh, employees who leaked stuff uh, without his knowledge or permission. So it is possible that, that Watergate would have played out a different way.
1: I mean, that's a very different America. It's also one in which we might not have confronted the growing surveillance state as we did in the late 1970s, right? Uh, Only to find it return in the 80s and then ramp up even more in the first decade of the 21st century, which is one of the things, you know, again, I'm really uh, fascinated by. You know, we have this massive domestic uh, intelligence gathering system and the roots are pretty deep, right? The roots, it turns out, go back to the New Deal, right? Go back to Franklin Roosevelt and his partnership with Hoover. Can you talk about his relationship with Hoover. I mean, these seem like two very different men. It's striking to me that Roosevelt and Hoover had some sort of working partnership and
2: understanding. Can you explain that? Yeah, one of the really fascinating things in doing this research, and something that I didn't entirely expect to uncover, uh, was just how much liberals (laughs) liked J. Edgar Hoover for most of his career. I think our image of Hoover comes from the late 60s, from uh, his attacks on the new left, on the civil rights movement, right? I think uh, for many people, that's kind of the dominant image of Hoover, and those are certainly real and important things. But for a lot of his career, particularly in the 20s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and even into the 1950s, there are many moments when uh, when liberals really are championing him and embracing him, and Franklin Roosevelt was one of them, of any president. Uh, It's really Roosevelt who builds the FBI in the ways that we might recognize today. First as a federal crime-fighting agency, and then secondly as a political surveillance force. And one of the interesting things is that the FBI is basically a New Deal alphabet agency, (laughs) Um, except that it reflects an aspect of the New Deal, which was its war on crime, that we don't really talk about as much when we talk about the New Deal. But when someone like Franklin Roosevelt said, you know, I stand for security, that had a lot of meanings. It meant social security and economic security, and that's what's most famous. Uh, But it also meant security from street crime and violent crime, which was a big, big issue in the 1930s. And then uh, as the war came along, it meant national security. So it is really Roosevelt who first empowers the FBI to carry guns and become this uh, sort of federal crime-fighting force. The name G-Man in the book, which stands for Government Man, comes out of the 1930s. And so uh, Hoover's this kind of avenging federal crime-fighter. And then on the surveillance question, it is the war and the lead up to the war where Roosevelt, who is not much of a civil libertarian, right. we as, note, as
1: any Japanese American family will tell you.
2: Right, exactly. He kind of pulls Hoover in and says, you know, these Nazis and the communists, they seem like kind of bad news. I know you're not really supposed to be doing this stuff, but. Could you do this stuff? So Hoover's kind of back at it uh, by, by the late 30s. And then the war just vastly expands all of this. Bev,
0: Hoover's FBI and Hoover himself was obsessed with communism and the, the threat from the left. Today, the threat to democracy is from the right. Let's just put our cards on the table, um, the far right. And I just wonder to what extent the, the FBI is culturally, politically structured in such a way that it can handle... The kind of right-wing threats to democracy that we're facing from some public and some semi-subversive, some underground members of white power movements, militias, uh, anti-democratic movements. Is the FBI kind of culturally equipped to tack back and forth? Um, How does it read the kind of threats to democracy that we're seeing today?
2: I think today's FBI still bears the stamp of both of Hoover's political traditions. So, one, uh, a real belief in kind of impartial investigation and government service um, that I think is real and present, as is the kind of cultural conservatism that we were talking about. And so— Uh, does one outweigh the other in these sorts of situations? Um, I think it's a delicate balancing act now, and it was for Hoover as well. But one of the things that I do write about in the book is that though Hoover never investigated the right with any of the energy um, and uh, kind of extreme enthusiasm he brought uh, to going after communists and leftists, uh, there are really key and important moments when the FBI does go after white supremacist groups, does kind of take the initiative. Uh, One of those is 1964 and then into the late 1960s when it opens. Uh, Cointelpro Ku Klux Klan. They call it Cointelpro white hate because they also go after neo-Nazi groups, states' rights groups, the Minutemen, who were a kind of violent militia group operating then.
0: Bev, just quickly for our listeners, what was Cointelpro and what does that stand for? And wasn't it mainly designed to go after people on the left?
2: Right. COINTELPRO was a program that was started in 1957, 58, and it was first targeted at the Communist Party. So it stands for counterintelligence program. That basically means trying to disrupt the organization from within, not trying to prosecute anyone, doing it all pretty secretly, you know, sending anonymous notes, sewing factionalism, sending informants in. Um, the FBI was actually pretty smart about the things that social movements one was factionalism the other was they would send informants in and be like make the meeting really long and boring (laughs) (laughs) ask really stupid questions (laughs) you know so the fbi could be in my department i know i was gonna say
1: have they infiltrated (laughs)
2: faculty meetings (laughs) exactly and so it's very funny to read that is pretty effective um And they deploy all of the same tactics against these right-wing and white supremacist groups that they were using against figures like Martin Luther King. Now, we might think that those tactics altogether are, you know, verboten. You're not supposed to do that. Um, But they did, in fact, even in Hoover's day, often target uh, right-wing groups. Certainly, they went after uh, the Nazis in the 1930s.
1: So that's really interesting. You're telling me that the same tactics were used— against extreme right groups, did that continue after the revelations about COINTELPRO in the late 1970s and the Church Commission? Like, was there a sense in the FBI that we need to turn our attention to the extreme right? I know they were very active in the 1980s going after uh, white supremacists helped bring some longtime offenders to justice in the 1980s and 90s. So did COINTELPRO essentially stick around, maybe under a different name?
2: Right, so COINTELPRO formally ends in 1971 um, after there's a burglary at a media Pennsylvania sort of small FBI regional office, and some anti-war activists break in. They steal all the documents. They
0: publish these documents from Temple University, by the way. I know those guys.
2: Yeah, right. they were <laughs> never caught. It's kind of an amazing story. <laughs> it's an incredible story. They just story. went on to become like nice professors. Yes, and yes, things. religion department.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: they were the crazy Quakers. they, they were they were just like we're going to go into the FBI headquarters and take their stuff. That's right. There's a great book about that and a great documentary that I highly recommend. It's an amazing story. Um, But they did help to formally get COINTELPRO shut down at the FBI. Um, But a lot of the tactics of COINTELPRO, of course, linger on in various ways. Bev,
0: I have a kind of uh, maybe geeky question, but one of the words that you use a lot in your book is administrative. And you use it to refer to Hoover's own passion for administrative professionalism and excellence and his... uh, zeal for collecting note cards and files and so forth, but also you you refer to the evolution of an administrative state. And, you know, Hoover championed that as well. I mean, can we identify Hoover's investigative zeal with patterns that have essentially worked to close down, to thwart democratic engagement with government? Hmm.
2: Well, I want to assure any potential readers out there that I don't actually use the word administrative all that often in the book, (laughs) or I don't think that I did. Uh, It is definitely in there. It's a very
0: big book, but there's quite a few usages of it.
2: (laughs) Um, Hoover was a real believer in effective bureaucracy. Um, He was a, a great file keeper, as we know, which he learned in part in his first government job, which was at the Library of Congress. Um, He was a great believer in hierarchy and in standards and in really clear rules and policies and in uh, his own personal control over all of that. So one of the interesting things about Hoover is that he managed to keep his agents out of the civil service, Mm. and that meant that he had almost total control over who was hired and who was fired, which is one reason that the FBI ended up with such a distinctive cultural stamp, right? When you imagine an FBI agent, you know who you're thinking about, right? The tall white guy in the suit. Um, Whereas when you think of someone at the Social Security Administration, (laughs) you don't really have that same deep cultural stamp. Um, So Hoover was uh, a great believer in those things, uh, but he also, of course, abused them in all sorts of ways and uh, took this bureaucracy— and made it work as much toward his own political vision and his own ends as toward anything that would truly serve the country. I think he was one of the great arbiters for most of the 20th century of the limits of American democracy, who was going to be considered legitimate, who was going to be considered illegitimate, and he had very clear ideas about that. And the administrative state itself is designed in some ways to be pretty undemocratic, right? That the goal of career expert government service is to stand outside of all of the chaos of electoral politics, to be insulated um, from partisan politics, and uh, to not be not be swayed every four years. Uh, it has certain virtues, as we've seen in recent years, and of course, uh, it's something that can be abused and be deleterious as well. Right.
1: So it seems like we see through your work, uh, Hoover, the politician, right? The master politician, perhaps one of the most successful American politicians of the 20th century. And, And as you wrote, if he had retired in 1959, he probably would be remembered purely as a hero. But we also see in your work, Hoover, the archivist, right? The person who keeps everything, keeps every record. I'm most interested in Hoover as architect. Now, you mentioned... That he managed to exempt FBI employees from civil service. That happened again in 2002 with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, where you know sort of a special exemption was rushed through to make DHS employees exempt from normal civil service requirements. And that includes the uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents, right? Which now we see, and we have pretty good documentation, is a rogue element of our government, uh, largely uncontrollable by the executive branch that is culturally and politically opposed to a lot of what many Americans, including myself, wish would happen in this country, right? And we've seen all sorts of outlandish behavior in that sense, right? So it seems to me that by the time we hit 9-11-2001, the Patriot Act, it's as if the ghost of Hoover lives on. Do you see the expanse of federal power in the 21st century being kind of what Hoover would have liked, or at least what Hoover designed for us?
2: Absolutely. And one of the analyses of Uh, the post-9-11 world is that uh, those reforms of the 1970s were bad because they had crippled the intelligence agencies and therefore um, had helped to lead to 9-11. And so there may be some truth to that, but it also is a quite explicit return to an earlier era, uh, even going back to the teens and the early 20s. Um, Hoover first becomes a significant figure in the Justice Department and the FBI when he is 24 years old and he's put in... In charge of this newly created radical division, which is intended to conduct surveillance, particularly of uh, left-wingers in the United States, first federal peacetime surveillance program in the country, and that was largely in response to acts of terrorism. In that moment, you know, it's not only that he had personal control, but uh, whether you're talking about the FBI or Homeland Security, um, it creates a very different culture uh, within the institution itself, who it is that people are looking to for authority. Hoover uh, made a very explicit point of picking almost all of his early officials out of the college he went to and the fraternity that he belonged to. So they were just guys who were like him, shared his values, shared his ideas. Clyde Tolson, uh, the person who was closest to him for most of his life, assistant director of the fbi associate director came out of george washington university just like hoover
0: i mean the uh, the portrait of those fraternity brothers and their menstrual shows and their blackface and their this and that i mean my god it's just uh, it, it well for one thing it's a reminder that washington dc was a deep southern town for the era that he was growing up
2: yeah the place that i've seen kappa alpha in the news in the last 5 years most prominently is i don't know if you all remember There was some controversy around the fact that the Emmett Till sign had been shot up. And then there was this photo of these three young men with their AR-15s. Guess what fraternity they were from? Uh, They were Kappa Alpha's too. Oh,
1: man. If only historians could get into the archives of fraternities, like the American story that could be told (laughs) from that.
2: Right. No, I've been wanting to write more about Kappa Alpha, and they have this journal... (laughs) Which, uh, you know, I only really have them through the 60s. But the journal, I mean, it's not like they're hiding, they're just saying everything.
1: No, right, right, exactly. I mean, they're in
2: power. Right, right.
1: Well, Beverly Gage, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thanks so much. Beverly Gage is a historian of the Gilded Age and the 20th century at Yale University. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, and she's a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine. Her new biography of J. Edgar Hoover is G-Man, and she's the author previously of The Day Wall Street Exploded, A Story of America in Its First Age of Terror. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit
0: democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends. In a world saturated with apocalyptical news, the All About Change podcast hosted by me, Jay Ruderman, is a much needed breath of hope. We bring you stories of activism, change, and courage, individuals who leverage the hardship they've endured to better other people's lives. It features famous guests, such as NBA star Kevin Love or actor Gina Davis, as well as
1: less known people with incredible stories. Check out All About Change podcast for your dose of inspiration. Well, I am struck by this idea that J. Edgar Hoover could possibly be one of the five most influential Americans of the 20th century. So many of his dreams, perhaps our nightmares, have been realized long after his death, 30 years or more after his death. We've, we've essentially built the system that he would have loved operating under. Am I making too much of this?
0: No, it's an absolutely valuable insight. Hoover as architect. Mm -hmm. You know, he stopped building when he died in 1972. But half a century later, we're living in a world that feels much more Hoover-esque than anything they could have dreamed of in the 1940s or 50s. The power of the state, the size of the state, the ability of the state to surveil citizens. And of course, this has played into a narrative from the alt-right, and in fact, from the far left as well, that the American state is an untrustworthy tyranny, a behemoth uh, that is fundamentally undemocratic. And there's some truth to that. I mean, let's shine a light on the fact that the American surveillance state has become incredibly powerful, and it has become frightening to
1: average citizens with some reason. And and with so little accountability, right? But at the same time, that exemption from accountability, you could read as... Independence from partisan politics, another thing that J. Edgar Hoover prided himself on, one of the reasons he could work so closely with a Lyndon Johnson and a Richard Nixon. Now, one of the legacies then, if we're going to call him this architect who basically has designed for us the 21st century surveillance state, national security state, is the fact that the FBI's independence from partisan politics – might have actually saved us, right? Might have actually kept just enough federal power at arm's length from Donald Trump that even he couldn't corrupt or distort the FBI any deeper than its directorship. And there's some evidence that even his own appointed director of the FBI, Christopher Wray, had some limits and didn't do his bidding as he expected. Which is why he's still the director. (laughs) Right. Right. And I do wonder whether that was a good move on Biden's part. But whatever. I mean, Biden couldn't fire everybody.
0: I mean, right. It was a way of showing, you see, I'm not even going to taint myself by firing the FBI director. I'll let the institution man
1: continue. I mean, Ray might be better than Comey for whatever that's worth. Oh, I mean, (laughs) I'd be better than Comey. (laughs) Less ego, certainly. Oh, my God. But Siva, on
0: the question of accountability, Bev Gage reminds us that, you know, Hoover was a very skilled bureaucrat, but he was fundamentally an institution man. He believed the institution that he had built should not collapse under its own weight by becoming too political, too nakedly partisan. So he tried to steer a course perhaps between uh, the dangers of partisanship. Uh, the FBI is part of the executive branch, so the accountability has to start with the president, which is a very dangerous way of having your surveillance, your your principal crime-fighting agency govern. The whole thing can fall apart very quickly, and I think that's the risk we've been running in these last uh, few years, is, is watching as our institutions you know, buckle a little bit, because it's fundamentally about the people in them and their belief in the system that can allow it to survive and to remain
1: somewhat democratic. That's all for this episode of Democracy in Danger. We'll be back in a fortnight with more on America's troubled immigration and refugee system with legal historian Kimberly Godderman. Sexual assault is often perceived as a personal, intimate crime that is not valid as a ground for asylum
2: for women.
0: In the meantime, catch up on all our episodes on our website,
1: dindanger.com. Org. And stay loyal, friends. Please share this show on social media and use it in your classrooms. Please tag us on Twitter at D&D podcast. that's at d-i-n-d-podcast. Democracy in
0: Danger is produced by Robert Armengold. Rebecca Barry is our associate producer, Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B
1: Webster support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Sivavadiyanathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. We'll see you again soon.